Welcome once again to Redeemed Community Church. We are glad to have each and every one of you join us today. We are in week two of our sermon series through the book of Galatians, where we're going uh, chapter by chapter. And in this book, as we talked about, as Justin shared last week, it's all about fundamentally understanding what is the gospel and what isn't the gospel. As we are going to read a little bit this morning, the church in Galatia was surrounded by false gospels, false messages about how we can really be saved. And us too, in this world today, we are also surrounded by false gospels, things that would lead us astray from the one true gospel. So before I begin this message, I would like to ask, has anyone here ever been in a uh, car accident? All right, a couple of us, yeah. Uh, I had the misfortune of being in a few car accidents uh, in my life. And one thing that, there's a lot of things that happen after you get into an accident, right? Um, you have to deal with your vehicle, how you get home. If there, if, hopefully there's no injuries, but if there's an injuries, those need to be treated. But one of the things that also happens after you get into an accident is a lot of people are going to try to figure out who is to blame for what has happened. Your insurance company cares about this, the police will care about this, and they are going to open up a case to find out who caused this accident. And I remember when I experienced my car accidents, I had to provide a lot of evidence and information to explain what really happened so that I could prove that I was not at fault. Um, a couple of things that I would have done was give a statement, a description of the events that occurred. Uh, photos are taken of the accident to try to recreate what happened. And uh, one time I even had to draw a picture of the uh, situation. I don't know if anyone else has done that, but they actually asked me to draw a picture uh, of the problem. And, I, and I'm doing all this because I don't want to be at fault. I don't want my insurance premiums to go up. I don't want to um, lose any more money than I'm, going to, than I'm already going to have to lose because of this you know, accident. Spiritually speaking, this parallels a topic that is you know, important to us and something that Paul's going to talk about in uh, chapter 2. This idea that all of us are going to stand before God and we have to give a defense of our life. We have to make a statement about what our life has entailed and whether because of the events of our life or what has something that has happened, are we innocent or are we guilty? This is going to come up in today's uh, passage today. And the term that comes up is this term called justification. We're going to talk about it a little bit more later on. But this idea that Paul talks about is, how are we justified? This is the question that he is going to be dealing with in this chapter. How are we justified? What allows us to stand before God and say, I am good before you? So we're going to be reading Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. If you have your Bibles with you, please uh, open them up, or you can follow along uh, on the screen. But let's begin, starting in verse 11. Uh, when Cephas, that is the apostle Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. 
The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the, God, the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all them, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, sinners doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning as we sang, we reflect on what you have done for us on the cross, the sacrifice that you have made so that we may be forgiven and that we may be set free from our sins. Oh God, for many of us, we may be consumed right now in our mind with the things that are wrong in our lives, but instead, oh God, I pray that you would help us tune our hearts and tune our ears towards you this morning. Let us turn towards you and see that all that we have is indeed good because we have you. We have our relationship with you, Jesus. We have life in you, and we have a new hope in you. So as we go through this word, as we go through the book of Galatians, I pray that you would illuminate these words to our heart and that you would help deepen our relationship with you and deepen our convictions in you and fill us with a new measure of joy and hope this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so as Justin mentioned last week, the book of Galatians is written to churches in Galatia to address the distortion of the gospel that was occurring in that church specifically by a group called uh, Judaizers. These would have been Jewish Christians that believed that in order to be truly saved, you must believe in Jesus, but you must continue to obey the law diligently. You must be circumcised. You must refrain from certain eat, uh, eating certain meats. You must participate in festivals and uphold to all the other customs of our law. And Paul, through this letter, is going to address why that is wrong. And in chapter 2, he is, what he's basically doing is he is telling a story of a time that he has faced the exact same situations that they have many, many years ago when he was um, serving and in leadership at a church in Antioch. And he describes this time at this church in Antioch, and he describes it as a time when, uh, right before his missionary journeys, where a fellow apostle actually came to visit uh, Peter, who uh, was also called Cephas in Greek, uh, meaning Peter. When Peter uh, came 
to uh, the church, and there was a confrontation between uh, the Apostle Paul and the uh, Apostle Peter, where the Apostle Paul would actually, in verses uh, 11 and 14, it says that he actually got up in front of all of the church, in front of all the church, and he opposed Peter directly to his face. Now, could you imagine this morning, if right now, Justin got up, or Victor got up, they walked right over, and they opposed me to my face right here and said, Dom, you are wrong. Man, that would be awkward. That would be uncomfortable. And that could potentially be really damaging to the church, especially if it's in a situation that does not call for it. So for Paul to do such a thing, it just underscores how serious what Peter is doing is, that this isn't something that can just be brushed aside, but it is something that needs to be dealt with and dealt with in front of the entire assembly of the church. So what is it that is, what is the problem? What does Paul need to address? Well, it starts, the, the problem is all separated because of Peter's interaction with the Gentile Christians. Paul writes that he used to eat with them at the church assembly. He used to eat and sit down and fellowship with them, but he began to draw himself back from them. He began to stop eating with the Gentile Christians, and he began to start eating only with the Jewish Christians. So Gentile Christians are anyone who was not uh, from a Jewish background. They could have been Greek, Anatolian, Roman, um, anyone who was not Jewish. And Peter stopped, stopped eating with them and started eating only with his own, uh, with people who used to be Jewish. And Paul notes that this didn't happen randomly, but it only occurred when certain men came from James. So who are these certain men, and why does their presence matter here? Well, what Paul is probably referring to would be Jewish Christians that came from Jerusalem, which early on was the, you know, the, the, the capital of the Christian movement. James was you know, the leading apostle in the church of you know, Jerusalem. And like the people that were distorting the gospel to the Galatians, these men from James were also Judaizers. They believed that in addition, that to be truly saved, you must believe in Jesus, but you must continue to follow the Jewish customs. And so when they arrive to the church at Antioch, they see this interesting church of Jewish people intermingling with Gentile people. And because these Gentile people have not change their habits. They are still eating pork. They are still um, not following certain other laws or customs that are in their book. They don't view these Gentile Christians as saved. They view them as unsaved heathens. And if these are unsaved heathens, then they have a problem with the Jews, the Jewish Christians that are sitting and eating with them, because by their law, it was illegal, it was wrong for someone who was Jewish to sit and intermingle with a Gentile. It was forbidden. And so Peter, the reason why he is withdrawing, as Paul notes, is because he is afraid. He is afraid of what they may say, what they may do. It's likely that these men even had influence. They could have tarnished his name 
among the rest of the Christians that were in you know, Judea, back in Peter's home. So Peter withdraws. He you know, refrains. But this is a huge problem. As we've, we've seen, it's enough to make Paul get up out of his seat and go up and confront Peter face to face. And you know, it's a problem for a number of reasons. First of all, just imagine the division that it would cause in the church for a leader to say that I cannot associate with you and, and your type of people. I can only associate with these people. Imagine if we're having a meal all together and, and one of the leaders of the church says, actually, you should only be eating with these people. You are not holy or you are not right or you are not good enough you know, to eat with these people. Imagine how you, know, you would feel. Imagine how hurt that would be. Imagine how problematic and difficult it would be to wrestle with that. But as, as difficult as this is, there's even something more serious that Paul wants to deal with. And what he points out is that this action that Peter is partaking, withdrawing from Gentile Christians and eating only with Jewish uh, Christians, this is not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. So the reason why Paul gets up is because he knows that the actions that he is seeing are distorting the true gospel. They are distorting what Christ really did for us. And it's distorting in two ways. It distorts to the Gentile Christians and it distorts to the Jewish Christians. So first, for the Gentile Christians, it gives them the impression or it gives them the impression that hey, if the Jewish Christians are not eating with me, then that means because I'm not holy, and the only way to become holy is to start adhering to the Mosaic law. Until I do that, I will remain unclean, I will remain unholy, I will remain unworthy of being before them and likely before God as well. So it's distorting the gospel for them, but also it distorts the gospel for the Jewish Christians because now they begin to revert back to relying on the law and, to, and seeing that they must follow the law in order to maintain their own purity or their own righteousness before God. We see here that in verse number 13, Paul says that the other Jews joined him, joined Peter in his hypocrisy, and so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was laid astray. Barnabas was a important leader at the church of Antioch and and around the area of Syria. So even he, this well-known, well-studied leader, was led astray through Peter's actions. So the gospel has been distorted for every single person in the church. In a moment, we're going to see how Paul begins to counteract, like what are his actual words towards Peter? But before we move on to the next verses, I just want us to pause for a moment and notice that the gospel message being distorted here through Peter, it didn't happen through Peter's preaching or through his teaching, but by his actions, by his choices, by the way that he lives his life. Brothers and sisters, it is important that we learn to communicate theologically what the gospel is. We must be knowledgeable in knowing how to preach and how to actually say what the gospel is, but we must also be mindful and pay attention to the way that we live our lives. How does your family, how do your friends, how do your coworkers, when they view your life, what do they see 
in what you really care about? Do they see that your reliance and your hope is on Jesus Christ? Or do we live in a way that we communicate to the world that our reliance is on something else, on money, on career standing, on influence among other people? Do we live in a life that says that as long as we have these things, we'll be happy, we'll be good, we'll be set? Or do we live in a way that reflects that Jesus is our all in all? So as a church, let's reflect and and think upon this question in a personal way this morning. In what ways we do communicate potentially to the people around us another type of gospel or another thing that we can rely on. And let us repent of that and let it go and commit ourselves to living a life that reflects the, the reality of the gospel to the world around us, so that therefore it is the only way that our discipleship ministries and our mission ministry will be, will be beneficial, will be effective. Because if we are living one way, but we are communicating something different, it's going to be really, really hard to see true missional and discipleship growth in our church. Now, moving on to the second part of uh, verse 14 on through 16, we are going to see how Paul rebukes Peter, how he corrects Peter for his problem, for, for, the, for what he is doing. So first, uh, Paul asks Peter, he asks him a question, if you, live, if you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how is it that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So he asks this rhetorical question because he knows that Peter knows the truth. He knows that Peter was the apostle that first saw God saving Gentiles firsthand. He knows that Peter has been advocating that Gentiles do not need to follow the law in order to be saved. And he knows that Peter himself has begun to relax his strict obedience to the law so that he can be more effective in his ministry than Gentiles. Peter does actually eat pork or eat lobster and shrimp and and abstain from uh, from certain Jewish customs so that he could be effective in preaching the gospel. So he reminds Peter, if you are living like a Gentile because you know that we don't need to follow our old customs, why are you forcing these Gentiles to have to live like a Jew? And then he continues by telling Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. And we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. So he acknowledges, hey, indeed, yes, we are, there is a difference. We are Jews, they are Gentile. We were people that, you know, originally were God's uh, chosen people. We have received the law. That is something that is different between our two groups. But the reality is, even though we were God's chosen people and we have received the law, it doesn't actually amount to anything because a person cannot be justified by the works of the law. So here is our key word of the day, justified or justification. The word here, justification, Paul is borrowing a term from a legal terminology used in Rome at that day. The idea was that if you were before a court and you are laying out you know, why you should be innocent or not um, punished for a certain crime that occurred. Maybe someone else did it. Maybe it's not as bad as it seemed. Whatever the situation was, 
if you received a favorable verdict from that judge that said that you were abstained from all wrong, you are good, that means you are justified. So just as me filling out my you know, car accident paperwork, I get the news from my insurance company or the police, wherever it may be, it says, you are not at fault. Paul would use the term to say, you are justified. All right, so he's borrowing from Roman legal terminology here. And spiritually, he is using this phrase to talk about the final judgment that all humanity must face. The Bible tells us that when we die, we will appear before Christ and we will have to give an account of our lives and we will be judged for it. And the Bible also makes it clear that there are only two possible outcomes afterwards. Either God will, will look upon us and say, I'm not going to count your sins against you. You are good. You are clean. You are justified. You can enjoy eternity with me in heaven. Or you are going to have to go to hell, a very real place that is filled with eternal torment, eternal suffering. There is no third option. There is no do-over. That's what awaits us, each and every one of us, when we die. So the question really is, is what makes us justified? What lets God, you know, say, yeah, Jamie, Irene, Chris, you guys are good. Dennis, Garland, Lloyd, sorry. What makes us justified? Well, to the Judaizers, they believed that they would be justified, receiving a favorable declaration from God because God would see how well they really followed his law. They would say, okay, you had a you followed the law 75% of the time, or 80%, or 90%, 99%, whatever that, that barrier is. You did enough good things, you're in. That's the, the Judaizers' mindset, that by their obedience to the law, they are good. And while we probably have not ever run into a, a Judaizer in our lives today, someone saying, hey, make sure you get circumcised, Hey, let's uh, make sure we follow the traditional Sabbath customs. Hey, stop eating pork. You know, we've probably never experienced that person um, personally, but the reality is, is that this kind of mindset of seeking justification by works is something that probably we've encountered on a daily basis, or at least um, on a routine enough basis that we could point it out. There's a couple examples for agnostics. You know, they would probably say, if God existed, I hope that I would be accepted into his heaven based on my morality, based on me doing enough good things or having a nice enough of a good, you know, view of the world and not hurting anyone and not causing a problem. I just did my own thing. You know, I should probably be allowed to be in heaven. For Catholics, they would, some would say that they can stand before God and say, I should be in because of how well I have followed the sacraments, how well I have made sure to be at Mass all the time, take the Eucharist, go to confession. I've done all these things as instructed by my faith. God, you should let me in. And even evangelical Christians, yes, evangelical Christians like you and I, you know, we sometimes make the mistake as well in thinking, God, do you, would you accept me based on, well, how faithful I've been as a Christian, how much I've gone to church, all the ministries I've served in, all the tithes that I've given? Surely all these things 
should mean that I can be welcome into your kingdom. Now, Paul doesn't go into depth in chapter 2 about why we cannot be justified by our works. He just simply says it cannot happen. He's going to talk about it in chapter 3. So I won't go into too much depth, but what I will say is that the reason we cannot be justified by works is simply that no one, none of us, is able to actually do enough to make ourselves worthy before God. We actually can't meet God's threshold, which is perfection. We cannot do enough things that meet that threshold. Each and every day we sin, we fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of his expectations. And even if we can say like the Pharisees that I have done everything right, Jesus points out in the Sermon of the Mount that even when your heart is not right, that can be sin. When you look at a brother or sister angrily, you are murdering them. When you look at someone lustfully, you are committing adultery in your heart. And so none of us can stand before God and say, by my own efforts, by my own ways, I deserve your grace. I deserve your heaven. I deserve to spend eternity with you. But the good news is that despite our sinful and helpless state, we can still be declared justified, not because of our works, but because of Jesus. Paul writes that a person is not justified by the works of their law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So the only reason that we can stand acquitted of our sins and be able to stand before God and be declared righteous is because of Jesus Christ. Because we have been unable to live that perfect life. We have all fallen short in one way or another on a continual basis. Jesus, when he lived on this earth, he lived the perfect life. He committed no sin. He followed God wholeheartedly. And even though he was in human flesh like you and I and experienced the temptations of Satan and temptations of this world, he did not succumb to them. And yet, in his love, in his mercy towards us, with this righteousness that he has attained, because he could say to God, I live the perfect life. He used his righteousness so that we might be saved from our wretched state and that we might be saved from the wrath of God. John Calvin, in writing on the topic of justification institutions, says that there is two parts of justification, what Jesus has done for us on the cross when he has died for our sins. The first is he talks about the remission of sins, that Jesus willingly went to the cross to be a sacrifice for us. He took the penalty that we deserve, and he took our sins, literally, upon himself so that he would face the wrath of God. And the reason we don't have to face it now is because he did. But if it was just that, then all that would do is leave us as a blank slate. And so there is a second part of justification, which is now that Jesus has imputed his righteousness on us. And what that just means is that he transfers the credit of his perfect life to us. So we now have the credit for all the right that Jesus has done when he lived on this earth. So when we stand before God, he no longer now sees the sins and the wrongs that you and I have committed, but he looks at us and all he sees is the rights 
that Jesus has done, all the ways that Jesus has obeyed, all the way that Jesus has fully loved God, the Father now sees that upon us. And that's why we can stand before God and say, I am right before you, not by my works, but because of Jesus, because of his works. Now this, now that we know that we are justified by Christ, not by our own works, what can we do to be saved? Well, Paul then says, we must put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith. All that is required is that we believe. Now, the problem that we sometimes make, or other Christians may make, is when we talk about faith in Jesus or believing in Jesus, we, we leave it as an intellectual concept. All that I need to do is make sure that I believe that Jesus died for my sins, he rose again, and that he is the one who saves us. And as long as I believe that, instead of another religion or another doctrine, you know, I am good. But the Bible tells us that Satan believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and that his demons believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But of course, they are not saved. And what we are, we are missing is what something that Paul talks about here. It's like we put our faith. So it's not just an intellectual belief, but it is a commitment of the heart. It is a commitment of oneself. This, it's a very active idea. It's like I actively am going to depend on Jesus. I'm not going to depend on anything else for my salvation, for my hope, for my life. I depend on Jesus and Jesus alone. So this morning, let us reflect and, and ask in what ways, what things of this world are we hoping on? What things of this world are we depending on for ourselves right now, but also for our future heaven? Are we depending on ourselves for our salvation? Are we depending on someone other than Jesus? Have you ever wondered, have I ever done enough in my life for God to accept me in his kingdom? Have you ever wondered, have I believed the right things? Have I said the right things? Have I served enough, worshipped enough? I want to encourage you to stop being filled with anxiety and stop being worried of if you have done it enough because the reality is that all we must do is believe that Jesus has done enough. So now we come to the final part of our passage this morning from verses 17 uh, to 21. And if we agree that we are justified by, only by faith in Jesus Christ for what he has done for us, you know, one big question is, how does this change how we live our lives? And this transitions to the last part here. And the big objection that anyone always brings up when talking about that, you know, our salvation is only based in Jesus, not by our works, is, okay, then, if Jesus just forgives our sins, then do we have to even try to live a godly life anymore? Do I have you know, a license to sin and do whatever I want because Jesus has, you know, forgiven me. And Paul brings us up before anyone even asks the question. He says, but if anyone's seeking to be justified in Christ and we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? And he says, absolutely not. This objection that you might have, it's absolutely not true. And first he says, if I rebuild what I destroy, then I really would be a lawbreaker. What he is referring to is the law. The law's effect has been destroyed. But if Paul wants to rebuild it and say, I want to depend on the law again, I want to depend on that for my salvation, 
He says that would make us a lawbreaker and a sinner because we are no longer relying on Jesus. We are going back to trying to you know, rely on ourselves, whether it's out of a fear or a pride. We are believing that something other than Jesus can save us, and that is a sin. So he, he calls out, first of all, you cannot go back to the law to try to attain your salvation. If you do so, that is actually true sin. But then he writes, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. And this is a powerful statement. Paul is saying that now that the law is no longer something that has to be followed, now we may truly live for him. So it's not that because of Jesus forgiving us of our sins, we now have a license to sin, but rather we may now truly live for him. How is that so? Well, first of all, when we recognize that the law is no longer required for us, we realize that all it does is point out our sins and how we have failed God. It frees us now to no longer be a slave to it. But then, what Paul comments is that by him being able to live for God, he leads it to probably the most intimate and wonderful and, and powerful truths of the gospel, which is our union with Christ. He writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith for the Son of God. See, when we have been saved, when we have been redeemed into Jesus, our old life dies with him. Our old life dies with him, that life that was sinful, that desire to rebel against God and live for our own ways. You know, it's gone. And instead, we live this new life where Jesus now dwells inside of us. Where Jesus now dwells in us and therefore we have an intimate and personal relationship with him. And one of the things that that does is now because of that intimate and personal relationship, the things that Jesus cares about, the thing that Jesus desires, become what we desire. You know, a great analogy for this is um, probably marriage, or really living with anyone for a long period of time. Um, I've now been married to man-man for eight years. By maybe eight and a half, if I calculate correctly. I've got to make sure I get that number straight. Um, around eight years or so, I've been married to man-man. And over time, the things that we like and the things that we care about have changed. For example, man-man hated camping and the outdoors. When she went on a hike once, she, was, she used to be afraid of the bugs that would be like buzzing around. It's like, I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to stay inside. But gradually, my love for, for camping has rubbed off on her, and now she is the one who asks each year, hey, are we going to go camping this year? Similarly, man-man's love for bubble tea has rubbed off onto me. Whereas I don't think I drank bubble tea very often before, and if you know her, you know that she's a big bubble tea fanatic. Now I find myself you know, craving and longing for bubble tea because you know, she craves and longs for bubble tea, and that has you know, rubbed off on me. And there's so many other ways that you know, we are rubbing off on each other and changing our you know, values or changing what we like and dislike. And that is, in a sense, kind of like our relationship with Christ, except it's more of a one-way thing where he rubs off onto 
you know, us and the things that he likes, he desires, now becomes us. We now desire to live and uphold God's ways. We desire to hold on to God's truth. The more we draw close to him and the more that we connect with him, you know, we desire his mission, the lost, seeing them saved. We desire that more as we draw deeper into relationship, you know, with him. And so this idea of, or this question of, hey, does Jesus' free grace give us a license to sin? It's actually, in a sense, an irrelevant question because you're ignoring our union with Christ and how we have now been fundamentally changed in who we are. And so how does this apply to you and I? Well, for those of us here this morning who have been, you know, struggling with how, you know, struggling with certain sins or struggling to see certain growth or to see certain, you want to live for Christ more in your life, but it just hasn't been working out. You know, perhaps your past route of, of, of direction may have been, I just need to try harder next week. You know, I just need to spend you know, more time or more effort in being intentional in my evangelism. I just need to spend, you know, more time, you know, watching my language. I need to do better in making sure I treat other people around me better. I need to make sure that, you know, I do a better job. I try harder in in worshiping God. But instead, consider this, that could the actual source or the actual root of your challenge be that Maybe it just comes down to spending more time with him and drawing deeper in that relationship with him. Instead of wondering, how can I try harder by my own works this week, ask yourselves, how can I draw closer to God this week? How can I experience a deeper relationship with him this week? What is holding me back? What ideas, mindsets, time commitments are holding me back from just growing deeper with him. And perhaps, as you are able to experience more of his love, and you're able to experience this person that Paul talks about, the one, the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him, as you experience that for yourself, you know, perhaps, and I think, you will see spontaneously new change and new growth in your life. Thanks for listening to the Redeemed Community Church Toronto podcast. If you enjoyed the message, please subscribe and we'll let you know when a new episode is available.